Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Do not let her funny, laid-back approachability fool you. Phoebe Robinson is a powerhouse, perhaps best known for her essay collections and the podcast-turned-HBO show, Two Dope Queens, the comedian, author, actor, and activist also created her own publishing and production companies. In her new freeform show, Everything's Trash, Robinson stars as a podcaster stumbling toward adulthood while her very together older brother runs for state office. The Dope Queen most recently joined City Lights this past fall to discuss her book, Please Don't Sit on My Bed in Your Outside Clothes, and in celebration of her new freeform show. Let's listen back to that conversation now. Phoebe Robinson's new book, Don't Sit on My Bed in Your Outside Clothes, has been on Time Magazine's list of the 34 most anticipated books of fall 2021. A new book by Phoebe Robinson has been on my most anticipated list since her 2019 book, Everything's Trash, but that's okay. Full disclosure, I look forward to Phoebe Robinson's creativity in every form of media, which is why it's such a delight to talk with her now. Phoebe, welcome back to City Lights. Thanks for having me back on. I'm so thrilled. I wish we could do this in person because you're such a ball, but I will happily (laughs) do this over Zoom if this means we get to chat. And maybe we could coin another word for your ever-growing glossary or dictionary. (laughs) If I could give you a Zoom hug, or should we call it a Zug? (laughs) I like Zug. (laughs) I've got to tell you, it's scary because, you know, I could be your mom, but after spending a 
couple hundred pages with you. <laughs> I find myself abbreviating words just in normal conversation with <laughs> non-Phoebe people. Anyway, what a different world we inhabit since your last visit to Atlanta for stand-up, I think that was, mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. summer of 2019. Yeah. Oh, we were so young and innocent back then. <laughs> we I'm are, telling you. We've grown a lot since then, and we've been challenged a lot. And sometimes I still feel like this is just a dream, and I'm going to wake up, and there's going to be no such thing as COVID. But then on the other hand, I feel sometimes I'm very present and I'm, you know, me thinking about how I should arrange my life in in certain ways. So it's this back and forth of just feeling like this is so unbelievable and I can't really comprehend it. And it driving me forward to do things like write this book and, you know, start this imprint that I was wanting to start before COVID. And yeah, it's strange times. I think... We need a new time zone. Like we should call it COVID standard time. Yeah. I mean, I I used to have this, you know, kind of calendar date oriented mind. And who can recall in this weird time zone? But it didn't stop you from writing a book, forming an imprint, forming your own production company. You write about all of that in this book. One thing that remains unchanged is your love of wordplay and expanding our language through creating your own language. Maybe we should call it Phoebish. Mm-hmm. I like Phoebish. <laughs> I like Phoebish. I think it captures it all. You are the only person who can make me laugh at a reference to Guantanamo. Guantanamo, Phoebe. You call it Guantans. Yeah, Guantans. Why not? It's so silly. <laughs> but that, you know, that sounds like something on a Chinese restaurant menu, not where where innocent people have been sent and many tortured. Would you talk about adding to our vocabulary with words such as situationship? Yeah, I mean, I think... One of the things that I love about language and about writing is that there are a lot of times where literature in general can just come off as so pretentious and so snobby. And so I always want to reject that. And even if I'm talking about something serious like performative allyship or a decision to be voluntarily child free, I want to talk about it in a way that's not only accessible but that is not taking myself too seriously. And instead it's sort of being like, we're all in this together. Let's sort of talk about it. And if I could just, you know, have fun with abbreviations or using things like situationship, um, just to sort of lighten the mood a little bit, then I'm happy to do it. And I think it makes the reader, at least I hope it makes the reader also not take themselves too seriously and remember, oh, right, I can have fun and I can poke fun at myself and I can poke fun at the things that I believe in because I'm confident enough to know that won't rattle me. So that's really where the inspiration from that comes from. And I think certainly as a Black person, there is always this expectation that 
the work you're gonna you write is gonna have to fit in you know the african-american canon in some way next to ta-nehisi Coates and tony morrison and Britt bennett and i'm just sort of like i i, I think there's room for just black authors to just be and have fun and write the things that they want to write without sort of having the pressure being like, is this going to be a thing that's going to represent blackness in some way that can be idolized? Oh, and you write about that compellingly because the complexity of approaching just conversation since the late spring and summer with the tragedies of 2020 has not been easy for people. I mean, you point out the importance of not all Black literature, Black entertainment, Black daily life being about struggle and strife. And yet it also is part of your essence and and forms who you are, your worldview. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things that when everything happened last year and George Floyd's murder and murder of several other um, Black people really kind of, because we were all, you know, quarantining, certainly nationwide and around the, the globe. And so there was just this heightened sense of people really paying attention to this because they're not able to distract themselves or, you know, move about their lives normally and go on vacations and work and blah, blah, blah. And there was a lot of sort of this push of like anti-racism books and them flying off the shelves and selling. And that's great. I mean, a lot of these people have worked so hard to, to write these books and, um, you know, I'm thinking about like, how to be an anti-racist, you know, Ijeoma Oluo's uh, book. So you want to talk about race? They're phenomenal and they're fantastic. But I also was like, you know, Black people write other books besides anti-racism books. And so for me, I'm like, are you reading, you know, YA novels like You Should See Me in a Crown by Leah Johnson? It's a Black girl who's in high school and she falls in love with this other girl and it's just you know, it's just about being a teenager or American Spy, which is espionage or just any sort of number of books that have nothing to do with sort of Black trauma. Like I think about someone like Samantha Irby and her essay collections are always so funny and so delightful and touch on everyday life. And so I feel like there's such a push for sort of publishing works where it's about Black people sort of dealing with trauma and there's a, an appetite to read that. And I always want people to sort of really take a beat and sort of think about why that is and why there isn't sort of the rallying cry or the, the rabid support around books by Black authors that are about Black life that's not you know, sort of just dealing in trauma and sort of adversity. And really, I want people to think about the way that they buy books and really just buy books that have something to do with Black joy or, you know, the Black experience is so wide ranging. And I think to just have it boiled down to just sort of pain and suffering, I think does a disservice to us. And I think it just reinforces the notion that Black life equals pain and suffering, and there's nothing else to it. Yes. Your affectionate name for the love of your life, British Bake Off. 
You mm-hmm. even play with the spelling of that nickname, uh, <laughs> B-A-E-K, off, so you get the bay in there. Actually, Phoebe, I have to tell you, I have retained a moment from our first conversation when we were in studio, and you got a call from Bay as you addressed him when you answered your phone. And I just remember your face. You were were radiant. (laughs) I, I knew when you took that phone call. Phoebe's in love, and here you are a couple mm-hmm. years later having taken on a whole lot together. You devote a lot of this book to writing about B.B. There's the chapter Quarren Bay and then the detailed chapter on a tale of an American dating a Brit. Would you talk about some of the cultural differences you've had to navigate? Yeah, I mean, we've been together four years and I have so much fun with him. Even, you know, as most couples, you have those moments where you don't see eye to eye, you're really frustrated with each other. But it's just like, there's no one else I'd rather be frustrated with than BB. I am the first American he's ever dated, first Black American he's ever dated, and he's the first British person I've ever dated. You know, there are just things like the whole thing about just like tea is such a huge part of British culture and they have full conversations about tea and I I didn't really think you could do that I was just like you just make tea and you drink it and you move on but it's truly a personality and a lifestyle there you know I just think that American energy typically is a little more aggressive and in your face and a little bit more like I'm going to let you know what I'm thinking, how I'm feeling, and you're going to have to deal with it. And, you know, I think a lot of British people are a little bit like, this is a lot of energy. Like when we first started dating, he was just like, why are you yelling at me all the time? And I was like, I'm not. This is my like regular voice. And this is how I speak. And I was like, I'm not loud. And he was like, you are so loud. And he was like, all your friends are loud. He's like, your family's loud. He's like, you Americans are just like screaming at the top of your lungs. And I always felt, I was like, I think we're kind of like chill and quiet, but that is not how people in the UK view us. Um, So we just have like those funny things where you just sort of have to realize, oh, oh, this is different than how you do things or this is what I'm not normally used to. But I think we really have found common ground in a lot of ways. And I just love him so much and he just makes me so happy. And yeah, I'm, I'm happy to keep learning and discovering all the ways that Americans are interesting to Brits. Brits like to give non-compliments. That is their, <laughs> oh, that's interesting. You go, oh, okay, so you hate that. <laughs> <laughs> Subtlety is not our long suit in the U.S., no. is it? I love when you wrote that you secretly longed for one of those translator earpieces everyone wears Mm -hmm. at the UN. (laughs) When we first started dating, it was truly hard. He would be on the road and we were long distance. And sometimes we couldn't FaceTime, so I couldn't like read his lips and really understand what he was saying. And I just had to like old fashioned just on the phone and I'd be like, what? 
the hell is this man saying right now? And just use like context clues. And now like, I totally hear the accent. And like, when people don't understand what he's saying, I just like translate it for him. And, but yeah, in the beginning, I was like, this sounds great, but I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> now, but have you picked up some Britishism? Sometimes they say the word mates instead of friends. I definitely love to do afternoon tea now. That's a whole thing where I'm like, let's spend an afternoon and we'll just drink lots of tea and eat cucumber sandwiches. So I've definitely have picked that up. And I'm a little less blah since I started dating him. I'm a, there's a, I'm a little bit more reserved, although my friends might be like, are you really? I feel like it's the same. But <laughs> <laughs> to me, I feel a little less like, a brash American, which I think is, I think is good. Yes, we could all use a little less brash, although I so identified with what you were writing about in observing cultural differences, particularly if one can generalize that Brits tend to be more reserved with their emotions. But here you've embraced high tea, and you say that delighting in his cultural idiosyncrasies is one of the joys of your life. Yeah, I mean, I just, you know, I never thought I would end up with a British person, you know, <laughs> so... I think when we started dating, we really had to sort of like meet in the middle. And I think one of the things for sure, he was definitely more reserved and definitely kept his feelings like close and was not as expressive as he is now. And he has such a wonderful personality and he's so nerdy and he's so <laughs> funny and he's so smart. And it's really like, he's just this bright light and so I think it was interesting at first, you know, when I went to the UK and I was like really spending time with people for the first time, I think, when did I go? Like uh, maybe Christmas 2017. Yeah, it was definitely one of those things where it was just like, oh, I see. Okay, this is sort of culturally speaking, like you guys aren't the oozing wound that, you know, Americans are where we're like, we want to tell you everything all the time, keep you up to speed. And so while there are parts of me where I'm like, oh, we got to like break this wall down a little bit, just the way that he carries himself and his Britishness, I, I really love and enjoy. And I never want him to change that. I never want him to get rid of that. Um, and I think he feels the same way about me. And he, you know, like he admires like the American confidence that I have and I've been living in New York for almost 20 years. So that kind of like ball busting energy that I have, like he <laughs> loves that. And I think it's, we bring out the best in each other, ultimately. Bono is among your favorite people on earth. And mm -hmm. I remember you wrote that meeting him was better than reparations. <laughs> I did write that. <laughs> Does that land a little differently now, Phoebe? <laughs> I mean, I was definitely joking. Like it was like truly one of the highlights of my life to meet him um, and to have him aware of my work. But I, I certainly am like, let's get these reparations people like Bono is great, but, you know, give us the cash. <laughs> <laughs> but I just really, you know, even as I, you know, know him and we become friends, I just really admire 
his conviction and his willingness to do the work to help make the world a better place. And, you know, I, I just really think that he's a great person and that he was an activist long before it became trendy and cool to do it. You know, he wasn't doing it to build his brand. He yes. was getting dinged for being an activist and really working, you know, outside of music and being politically active um, and outspoken. And so I just really appreciate that he was doing that. He never let any sort of like negative reaction to to him and his work get in the way of doing the work. And I'm, I'm so impressed by that. And I, he's, he's a wonderful person. Why was it refreshing when he asked you and BB what it's like being a couple? Yeah, I feel like my boyfriend and I are, um, we, we could turn to a little bit of a comedy duo and, you know, we both have such vibrant personalities in such different ways. So I think whenever people ask us that and when he asked us that, it was just like so fun. And, you know, Bake Off and I have our stories that we can go to and moments we can call on. And so it's really nice to sort of, I don't want to say like perform, but it's nice to just sort of like point out the funny ways that our union works, you know, especially for someone like Bono or someone on that level who's constantly like having to perform and do things for other people or have to be like, I got to be funny or I got to be amazing or I got to tell the story. I got to take this selfie or this picture or whatever. It was just nice for him to just like sit down. He could like eat his food without us being like, so famous person perform for us, be yeah. famous for us. So we can run back and tell our friends and like it was literally just like the three of us just hanging out after a concert, like old homies, you know, it was really nice. But Phoebe, am I reading more into it? I thought part of what was refreshing when he asked you to what it was like being a couple was that he wasn't referring to interracial differences. Yes, yes, yes. It was purely just like, he's from the UK, you're from America. He's not like, what's it like to date a white person? Like he, no. <laughs> like not where uh, Bono's head was at, which I, I really appreciated that. And he loves America and he's been here a lot, obviously. And he really likes us together as a couple and really wanted to see, you know, what we sort of noticed culturally that was different about us that we had to deal with within our relationship comedian, actress, and writer Phoebe Robinson. We'll be back with more after a short break. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. 
This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. If you are just joining us, we're listening back to my September conversation with the comedian, author, and actor Phoebe Robinson. She has a new show on Freeform, and her most recent book is Please Don't Sit on My Bed in Your Outside Clothes. We spoke after the book came out last fall, and here she reads an excerpt from the chapter titled, Yes, I Have Free Time Because I Don't Have Kids. There are only a handful of toys I still remember from my childhood. The Skitbit, which I was convinced made me an athlete, my Pee Wee Herman pull string talking doll, and my favorite one, a baby doll I creatively named Baby, which eventually got decapitated. But still, every night, the head and the rest of her body slept side by side with me in bed. Don't ask. Wait, Actually, you should because what I just described was a low-key serial killer in training thing to do. Okay, so long story short, one day my brother and I playing with our various toys decided to put the doll in the washing machine and her head got chopped off. I was devastated, but because I loved baby so much, I never wanted to replace her. Instead, I would sometimes walk around the house carrying her head in my arms and everyone in my family just acted like this was normal. What the hell, mom and dad? Y'all have never met a hotel doorknob that you didn't inspect thoroughly for several minutes and give a silkwood shower to, yet not once were you like, let me investigate why our daughter is living her best low-budget Wednesday Adams life and mothering a decapitated doll head. <laughs> You're addressing, in a very sobering way, a very serious topic. Why Why was it important for you to be public about the choice to not have children, Phoebe? I mean, clearly this is something you and BB reached. You're fine with it. They're fine with it. Everybody's fine with it. Why was it important for you to be public with this? Yeah, I mean, I just think so many, not I think, I know, society still values women based on motherhood. And if you're a good mother, which, you know, the standards are so high for women to do everything perfectly, spend all their time with their kids, also work, be the PTA mom, know how to bake, be there for all the extracurriculars. So there's these this sort of like expectation that women are supposed to be these incredible, perfect mothers who love being a mom 24 seven. And if you don't subscribe to that lifestyle, or if that's not something that you want and you choose to not have children or through circumstances beyond your control are unable to have kids, but you still want them, your womanhood is put into question. And so, you you know, I'm in my mid thirties and a lot of my friends are in, are in the same age bracket. And a lot of them are having kids now. And some of them are older than me and they're having kids now, or some of them are just sort of like, okay, I'm just going to freeze my eggs and sort of figure this out. And 
I just felt like there's just such a stigma if a woman chooses to not have children, to look at her life, you know, really take into account everything that she wants or doesn't want, how it impacts her life and comes down the side of, you know, I love kids or I like kids, but it's not for me. That decision is so negatively judged a lot of times. My hope was writing this essay was, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of other women who don't want to have kids and maybe they don't have as many supportive people in their lives as I have had. And they feel a little discouraged or they feel pushed aside. And so I really want this essay while there are moments of comedy in there, as I just read, it's a really vulnerable and honest essay. And I really want women to celebrate their lives and the fact that they could choose how they wanted to live their life. Like that to me is the ultimate cause for celebrations that you got to make that choice. Mm. And society needs to allow women to make the choices without having anything to say about it. It really struck me when you wrote about, I think you described it as a collective sigh from society when Cameron Diaz chose to have a child at 47 and George Clooney to become a father at 53 or 56, whatever. I don't think I had ever stopped to realize the stigma that goes along with being consciously childless. Yeah, and I think like with those two examples I was using in the book, I think if someone has kids later in life, a lot of times people will be, oh, okay, so you finally decide to grow up. As if everything they did when they weren't a parent is invaluable, is unworthy, is not important. When I was writing about that, I was just like, that's not what the reaction should be. The reaction should be, oh, that's great that you've changed your life in a way that fits you better now. And I think this notion that you are Peter panning your way through life if you're not a parent, I just think is so dismissive. Not everybody wants the same things. And that's okay. And I know we're all in this together as a society, but people have to make the right choices for their lives. And the last thing that I think any of us want is for people who have no desire to have children to try and become parents. Like we don't need that. We want people who want to do the job and are really, you know, passionate about molding human beings. And if that's not what your passion is, please, by all means, don't do it. Congratulations on forming your own business, Tiny Reparations, and the success of that business, Phoebe. My goodness, the the book imprint, the production company, how you manage it all and find a couple hours to sleep is beyond comprehension. (laughs) I gather it's rewarding. It is rewarding. I, of course, have a team. I'm not doing everything by myself. And yeah, I mean, it definitely was a workaholic where it was like hustle, 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 go, go, go. And now I'm definitely moving with more intention and trying to slow down a little bit and take pockets of time. And, you know, like I worked a lot yesterday and then it was eight o'clock and I stopped so I could watch Dancing with the Stars. Like important (laughs) stuff. Yeah. So I I take time out to relax and take naps to go on vacations and, 
read for pleasure. And I think that's what everyone should, should be allowed to jump off the hamster wheel and just recharge and, and have a little bit of fun. Mm. There was one part of that chapter in which you address serious things that made me laugh out loud so forcefully. Phoebe, I'm not exaggerating this. I startled my husband, who was upstairs with the door closed. (laughs) And I was hoping you would share the story that made me laugh that loud. The story of your little three-year-old nephew's taste in mustard. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I was on the phone with my dad, just like catching up about life. I don't know where he was just like, you know... Trey, that's the name of my nephew. He goes, Trey like only wants to eat gray poupon. And I was like, uh-huh. And how <laughs> did that come to be? <laughs> and my dad was like, well, you know, I wanted him to try like a bunch of different, you know, condiments to sort of like figure out what he likes and what he doesn't like and just, you know, have his adventure with like taste or whatever. And I was like, right. He's three. He still licks the floor. He does not need to try out Grey Poupon. Like he's in a a different place right now. And it was just so funny that my dad was like, I just can't believe it. And I was just like, we aren't even a bougie family. I don't even know why you're like doing this, but it just made me laugh so much. It was so funny. I loved it. And of course, this ties into your realizing that you don't need to provide the most expensive gourmet snacks for your team or the architectural digest office furniture. Yeah. I mean, when I was uh, starting out in in stand-up comedy, I worked at this internet company called IAC and they own websites like Mash.com, Daily Beast, College Humor. And, you know, they were a company that has been around for, I want to say 25, 28 years. I can't remember the exact number of years, but you know, they have overseas office, they have LA office, New York office, and they would just have all like the best snacks. And like, they had this wellness room where, you know, people could just step away from their desk for like 10 minutes or, or women needed to go um, pump their, their breast for milk. They could do that in private. They had like these nice little like coffins rooms and like places where people could go if they needed to like, you know, congregate. And, you know, so when I was watching all that, I was like, oh, that's like what a real office does. They have like all these perks and, you know, they make like our holiday parties were so nice and fancy and had great food. And then when I was starting my own company, I was like, all that stuff is really cool. Like I eventually would like to have a wellness room. So if anyone who works for me is breastfeeding, they have a place where they could go pump and then come back to their desk. But I was also like, just because I can't afford to have that stuff doesn't mean that this isn't going to be a real office or I'm not going to cultivate an environment that is safe um, and good and, you know, efficient for my employees. So I had to just realize that because I don't, I'm not in a position where I could provide all these perks all the time. It doesn't mean that I'm not a true boss. And I really had to learn that like, and they know that we're all doing, I'm doing the best I can. I know that they're doing the best they can. And so when, when people know that and you make the effort, they don't need the like 
10 different kinds of cereals if the company culture is toxic. So I try to make sure the things that really matter, I prioritize. And then like, if I could throw in a perk here or there, I certainly want to do that. But yeah, I've learned a lot from being a boss and a leader over these past few years. And I, I think it's made me a better person on the whole, or at least I hope it has. It's such a different skill set required from your writing talent, your acting and stand-up. This, this is a big thing to take on, Phoebe. Yeah, it's a lot. And it's a lot of learning on the job. And you make some mistakes, you get some stuff right. And you just have to sort of have patience with yourself and not expect yourself to be perfect. My employees don't expect me to be perfect. I don't expect them to be perfect. And so, you know, I really try and go into into the office or into these Zoom meetings, because I'm still kind of mostly working from home. I go in maybe like once a week just show up as my best self and and allow myself and everyone around me to grow and change and and figure this stuff out because it's tricky. Uh, I don't know how you do it, but you lay it out beautifully in the book. And I was hoping you would you would tell us about the title. Yeah. Please don't sit on my bed in your outside clothes is truly something my parents live by. They clean their house top to bottom once a week. I'm talking sweeping, mopping, cleaning the baseboards, dusting, you know, rearranging the furniture, all that stuff. And that was really sort of the environment that my older brother and I grew up in. And they were just like the outside world is funky and trifling and dirty. And when you come into this home, we don't want that filth in here. And so, yeah, don't sit on the bed, don't sit on the couch until you change your clothes. And that's something that has stuck with me. And when I moved out and I went to college, I didn't realize it had stuck with me until, you know, I got my bedding from Target and I was so proud of like how cute it was. And people want to sit on my bed. And I was just like, you were just on the subway. You can't sit on my bed. Oh my God. And then <laughs> I realized that was a life lesson for my parents that really stuck with me. And because I write about them a fair amount in the book, I thought it would be nice to sort of shout them out in the title. Comedian, author, actor, and activist Phoebe Robinson from our conversation last fall. The Dope Queen currently stars in the new freeform show, Everything's Trash. And more information is on our website wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, we'll hear from the founders of Zilch Market, a non-alcoholic pop-up bar. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. We live in a society that often focuses social gatherings around alcohol, whether it's getting some beers at a brewery, a brunch outing, happy hour, or meeting for evening cocktails at a bar. What if there were a place to enjoy a non-alcoholic beverage 
in a fun environment. Zilch Market and Bar provides a safe space for non-drinkers with a multitude of non-alcoholic offerings. The creators of this pop-up experience, Lissy Eubanks and Savannah Rainey, join me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Hi. Hi, thank you. Would each of you please tell us why you chose to be a non-alcoholic drinker? Uh, yeah, so this is Savannah here. I got sober about three years ago. My three years is actually coming up on April 6th. But I stopped drinking because I obviously I came to the realization when I was 25 that I was an alcoholic. And, you know, it just even though I was young, I realized that uh, my mental and physical and emotional health was just suffering from using alcohol. And it was just the best decision for me at the time. Well, congratulations on your upcoming anniversary and for recognizing what needed to be done. Yeah, thank you. And I just celebrated my one year alcohol free. I stopped drinking completely after a few, a few times of, I would stop for a month or so and then pick it back up. But, you know, I just got to the point where I realized that it was not doing me any favors. You know, I didn't feel like I was reaching my full potential and I felt like I was using it as a bit of a coping mechanism. And so I decided to permanently take a step back and it's been the best thing ever. Great. How did you two meet? Uh, we met, actually, we worked together at a restaurant for three years. And then, you know, she got sober a few years after me, but we just kind of bonded over that and we became really close and we've been friends ever since. So what inspired you to create Zilch Market? Well, when I stopped drinking, the first thing I noticed was that all of my drink options and restaurants just kind of went away. And I've always been very interested in, you know, the culinary arts and going out to eat. And, you know, one of my favorite parts was trying new drinks. But once you take the alcohol away, the drinks go away with that. And so Savannah and I started talking and we wanted to provide a way to still have that atmosphere, the social setting and trying fun new beverages without alcohol. And what stereotypes are you trying to dismantle about sober living or living life as a non-drinker? I mean, I think the biggest stereotype, especially in the business we're doing, is that uh, mocktails are just juice, um, which is not the case at all. You know, we curate and craft all of our drinks by hand. That would be the biggest one specifically in our business. But as far as just being sober, I mean, the fact that you're boring or you can't have fun, which is, I am 10 times more fun now than I was when I was drinking. <laughs> I, I promise you that I was not, I was not a cool person to be around when I was drinking. So I think just trying to, you know, get away from that, from that stigmatism against getting sober, against not drinking. Yeah. And then you also have people who don't drink for religious reasons and pregnant women and other health-related issues. I've heard of non-alcoholic beer, but how are the cocktail spirits and wines you feature, how are those created? 
Well, they're created in a few different ways. As far as wine goes, a lot of those wines are de-alcoholized wines, which are wines traditionally made in the traditional way. And then they gently remove the alcohol from that. So a lot of these products do have about 0.5% alcohol in them, which is about the same amount as a kombucha or a lot of food and beverages that we already consume, but it's low enough to be considered non-alcoholic. There are certain spirits and wine alternatives, however, that are made with ingredients to kind of mimic the taste and give you that feel, but with zero alcohol whatsoever. Hmm. Have people been shocked to realize there's no alcohol in your festive cocktails or wine? I think that the people that are coming to our events are not surprised, but people that I talk to like at my job or family members that aren't, you know, in my world every day, I do think that at first they're very confused. They don't really understand. But once I kind of explain it to them and why I'm doing it, and why it's important for our culture to have, they understand it a bit more. But I think that the people that are coming to our pop-ups know exactly what they're, what they're getting and what they're coming into. Hmm. Would you take us through, if not all of the beverages, some of your favorites that Zilch Market offers? Well, we offer a lot of great products by themselves that you can add to your home bar. One of my favorites is Monday Whiskey. Uh, Monday makes a great line of spirit alternatives uh, as well, well as Ritual. They also make a line of spirit alternatives. There is a local brewery called Right Side Brewing that is Georgia's only non-alcoholic beer brewery. They're really great. And all these you can add to your home bar and make your own non-alcoholic cocktails. If you come to our pop-ups, we have a ton of already pre-made cocktails that are riffs on classics like Old Fashions, Manhattans, things like that. Hmm. What's offered at the bottle shop? At the bottle shop, we have we have a bunch of different spirits. Like she said, uh, we've got tequila alternatives, gin, whiskey. We have also have curious elixirs, which are... Uh, made to be drunk by themselves. We have mixers, simple syrups. We have sparkling sodas. We have beer. We have wine. So we're kind of offering all of that as well in our bottle shop. And we also offer a lot of simple syrups and mixers that you can add to alcoholic drinks. You know, we, we don't want to completely alienate people who do drink alcohol once in a while as well. So they can still come and find unique things to add to their own bar. Does Zilch often have pop-ups at coffee shops in order to offer even more non-alcoholic choices? Yeah, so far we've had most luck at coffee shops, and it's mostly due to the fact that coffee shops are closed at night, and it's not going to be an alcohol-heavy environment. Uh, You know, our guests aren't going to be coming in and seeing liquor, you know, behind the back bar, which is something that, you know, we take pride in and not having an environment surrounded by alcohol. So that's where we have had the most luck. Oh, okay. Some studies have found that Gen Zers around the world, along with their millennial counterparts, are actually drinking less than older generations did at those ages. Does that surprise you? It is a little surprising, but at the same time, Gen Z especially is the generation that has been the most 
open-minded about a lot of things. And I think that includes alcohol. I think people are really learning to change their views on it and, and challenge the things that society has taught us about alcohol consumption. Mm -hmm. So do those research findings match up with the demographic you see and serve at Zilch? It, It does. We actually have a lot of young people, which is really, really nice to see. Yeah. I mentioned people not drinking alcohol for various reasons, religious, sobriety, pregnancy, health. What have you heard from your clients? What kind of feedback have you gotten about your providing a safe space to enjoy non-alcoholic beverages? The reception has been overwhelmingly positive, and it's actually been nice for me and Lisa to see because, you know, while we both don't drink for you know, personal reasons. And with me being a recovering alcoholic, we have also seen pregnant women or people who do drink, but they don't want to drink every night and they still want to go out and have a good night. Like I said, it's been overwhelmingly positive. We've had people coming up to us at our pop-ups and thanking us for doing what we're doing. They can't wait to come to our next one. And at our first one that we did at Chrome Yellow, we sold out of our cocktails within like two and a half hours. It was total insanity. So we are just (laughs) extremely grateful. Oh, teetotal insanity, I guess you could call it. (laughs) I'm curious about the future for Zilch. Your response from clients bodes well. Do you want to be brick and mortar? We do definitely want to be a brick and mortar. I think our goal right now is to have a brick and mortar that doubles as both a bar space and a bottle shop. You know, we really aim to provide a space that feels normal, like a normal cocktail bar. And that's some of the feedback that we've gotten that's been so positive is people saying that they finally can come out and feel normal. They don't feel alienated. And so that's what we're going to go for in our brick and mortar. You know, it's going to feel like any other cool new cocktail bar just without the alcohol. What about selling these beverages to local bars or grocery stores or even breweries? Well, we are not a distributor. So Ah. as far as that goes, there are plenty of distributors and the brands themselves can sell directly to stores. And I would encourage restaurants and stores to reach out to those brands and try them and get them in stock because you know, they've really been picking up speed. Lisa Eubanks and Savannah Rainey, founders of Zilch Market, the non-alcoholic pop-up bar. More information about future pop-ups can be found on their website, zilchmarketatl.com. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., we'll explore the art of storytelling with the creatives behind The Moth Radio Hour and discuss their new field guide, How to Tell a Story. Plus, music contributor Vaughn Phoenix and our series, Punk Black to Go. 
If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you will find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. We'd love for you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at LOIS. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.